Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Age Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're going to be talking about the management myth with the author that we've been trying to get since day one of our show, Ed, Matthew Stewart. So, Ed, how's it going? I'm really excited to be on today. I'm really thrilled that Matthew's finally been able to join us. He was the, as you were saying to him, the most mentioned author on our show and was mentioned in show one that we <laughs> did. And I'll, I'll talk to him about that. But Matthew, welcome to the soul of enterprise. Well, hey, great to be here, Ron and Ed. And really, I'm, I, I'm honored to, to um, be number one, I guess, on your in your first show. <laughs> you're, you're 332 shows late as far as we're concerned, <laughs> but that's okay. We eventually got you. Um, Matthew, I don't even want to take time reading your bio, so, other than to say that you graduated from Princeton University in 85 with a concentration in political philosophy, and then you went to Oxford where you earned a doctor of philosophy in 1988, and I think German philosophy, 19th century German philosophy, if I'm not mistaken. How does a guy who's got a doctorate in philosophy end up in management consulting? Well, it, you know, it's clearly one of those things that, that probably should, should not have happened. And, in, and maybe in the best, best of all possible worlds, it, it, it would not have happened. Um, so, it, I, you know, I'm, I am an intellectual at heart. I have to, I have to confess to that. Um, but I found that philosophy was just not not working for me. I remember, I remember one day I, I was talking with a professor, and he had a question that went something like, "If a married man travels back in time and marries somebody else, is he a bigamist?" And I thought, "Wow, you know, with questions like that, I don't think I really want to know the answer." <laughs> I also thought that maybe, maybe philosophy wasn't what he really needed to be talking about. And so philosophy was not working for me. Um, and I, I, I saw that the people around me who were even less qualified than, than me were getting all these jobs with management consulting firms and investment banks. I really didn't know what I was getting into. I sent off a few letters. I got a job. Um, I needed a job at the time. Um, so in some ways it was kind of pedestrian. I'll just say one other thing about it that I think is important. I actually thought there was something interesting about going into consulting in a kind of intellectual way. I mean, I thought that, um, you know, my issues with philosophy were that it, it was a kind of constructed or fake discipline. And I thought, well, management, these issues about business are going to be serious in some way. There's going to be some problems to solve, some things to think about that, that will have some impact somewhere. So I think, I think there was a, you know, a good, a good side to that accident too. Right. Right. I think we crossed paths. I, I went into business as a CPA and now later in life, wish I had the degree in philosophy instead, you kind of went the other way. And then you probably learned to appreciate philosophy more once you started getting into the management literature. 
Yeah, yeah. Can I just say something about that too? Because I, I feel bad, and I don't want to suggest that that philosophy is a complete, uh, you know, completely academic discipline, a waste of time, and so on. There's a lot there, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I I sort of got a better perspective on it from the outside. So I think there's a lot there and a lot to study. It's just that you know you also have to you have to get out of it to see it. Right. Right. Well, you know, your book, The Management Myth, which came out in 2009, and it's based on an article, or you'd written the article in The Atlantic first, as we talked about in, in June of 2006, and we're going to put both on the show notes, folks. You've got to read both. You've got to read the book, and you've got to read The Atlantic article, because they really go well together. And the book traces, like you say, the genealogy of the management literature, uh, discipline, whatever you want to call it. You expose its flaws, and then you want to replace it. And you say, you know, it's not a discipline, but an idea of one. And I always thought the two biggest oxymorons were political science and scientific management. <laughs> um, it, scientific management isn't a science, is it? It's a business. Yeah, that's, um, that, that's really, I think, one of the fundamental lessons that I, I got out of it. And I should say, by way of background, that... Um, there's this other paradox that I went into management consulting. I spent 10 years on, on and off in that business. And then I, I, and during that whole time, I really didn't read much management, didn't really have management theory or scientific management. I only got to it afterwards. Um, and, and then it kind of made sense. And I was able to put the two um, together. And, and yes, at the core of that, at, at, the, at the core, I think, of the issues with this managed body of management theory and so on is this kind of false idea of what management is. And the, the most um, difficult idea, the one that causes the most problems, is, is this idea that management is a, um, a science. It's kind of a form of engineering. Um, and you can sort of, you know, master it with uh, Frederick Taylor's, you know, little laws of efficiency and train people in it and have them go out and, and, and apply it. And, and that, that, I think, demonstrably leads to very, very problematic results. Right. And I, I, I know, I love how you say that management theorists lack depth because they've been doing for only about a century what philosophers have been doing for millennial, which is, you know, studying human behavior. And, and we have a saying around here that if you want knowledge, read nonfiction, but if you want wisdom, read literature or, or philosophy, yeah. I'd probably add to that. Um, well, Ron, I'm, I'm pleased to see that you're a, you're an advocate for the for the humanities. I mean, they're 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 pretty um, seriously bashed today, um, but and I think there are good th uh, reasons uh, for that criticism. But um, but if we approach them the right way, I think that they can be tremendously instructive. And I think that that that's I guess the one of the central messages that I wanted to get across. I'm so glad you brought it out. It's that. Um, if you approach the humanities right the right way, then yeah, they can provide some of that um, sort of human wisdom that you need in order to you know, do the leadership and, and do the actual things that, that management requires. Right. And <laughs> this is a scary question for me, Matthew, is the author of seven quote unquote business books, but how can so many bad books sell so well? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of bad books on religion, too. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of True. categories that, that have um, pretty weak um, uh, production. And, and the, the reason for it is that people are hungry for um, answers. Um, and, you know, I, I take it as, um, 
as evidence of an unmet demand and evidence that maybe we haven't quite approached it seriously enough. But essentially, we're kind of, you know, we've turned that market over to a bunch of, uh, you know, excuse me, Ron, I don't, I don't mean this personally, but, uh, you know, sort of showmen uh, sure. in the, uh, in, in the you know, carnival barkers when maybe it should be taken a little more seriously. And then, and then I think you'd get better books. But yeah, it's a problem. And I, you know, I have to say that what inspired that um, Atlantic article was, was in fact this experience of, you know, picking up these books that I'd never read, but I sort of bought while I was a consultant and I picked them up and I, I read them. It was horrifying. I mean, it was, I don't mean, I don't know. No, I don't no, no. Like don't, 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 you don't have to qualify. I'm very aware of it. We, we joke around here that the, the library shelves in hell are stocked with business books and the ones in heaven have literature. Uh, you, you quote an old professor, Matthew, and I love this. He says, how can so many who know so little make so much by telling other people how to do the jobs they are paid to know how to do? Do you have a theory for why organizations continue uh, to hire consultants or theories? Right. So, so there have to be many theories, I should say, by qualification, because consulting is a whole bunch of things. But there's, there's basically two sides of any theory. One is the good theory that says, okay, they're doing something. Another one is the bad theory. Here's the good theory, the reason that do, where it does make some sense. Um, uh, organizations always get um, locked in their bubbles. So, you know, having that outside thing is important. I think that's kind of the fundamental basis of a good theory of consulting. Um, here's the bad theory of, of consulting. Um, it's that... Um, organizations um, and especially their top leaders are uh, face, they're, they're insecure and they need um, uh, backing or reinforcement to make decisions that they don't really want to make. And so they bring in the outside um, forces to essentially not to tell them what to do because they kind of know usually, but rather to, um, to enforce those decisions and to kind of make it more, make it possible to happen. So that's why, you know, a, a really big chunk of consulting is really, you know, and when, when I was in the business, we just called it, it was, it was some form of cost cutting or other. I mean, it was either headcount cutting, overhead reduction, or, or sourcing, or other things like that. That's kind of the bread and butter of a lot of consulting. And it's essentially just a way of kind of bringing an outsider to impose the discipline that the insiders don't want to impose. Um, and I guess you can, you can still split that into a little bit of a good and bad, because sometimes there is an efficiency gain there. Um, but very often it's just a matter of a power struggle and, and it's using the outsiders to kind of, uh, for that extra edge. Right. Although I, I've said, I, I, Ron, you've been in the business. I'm curious to hear what your, your theories are because I'm sure you've got some ideas of what. It, no, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think bringing in that outside perspective, I think because you can't be a prophet in your own land. So if some outside expert, you know, uh, confirmation of authority, right, comes in and says, oh, you need to be doing this or whatever then people are more likely to buy in. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, like you said, multi-factor reasons for it. Um, you know, Matthew, I read your book on a plane to Australia, and I had already written a couple books trying to trash Taylor, and I thought I did a pretty effective job until I read your book. You tore him down from his pedestal and buried him in the ground and nailed the coffin shut. 
and yet he keeps rearing his ugly head. We have a special loathing here for Frederick Taylor because he influenced the first lawyer to implement both the billable hour and the timesheet into a law firm in 1919, Harvard grad lawyer, heavily influenced by the zeitgeist of the day, which was Taylorism, scientific management, the whole nine yards. And it's been a blight on the professions ever since. And it's still around and it's a hundred years later. Yeah, I think, I think when someone survives like that, you have to appreciate that he's surviving because he's an idea. I mean, he, he fulfills some expectation that people have, some hope they have. Um, but that's why I thought it was so important, as you say, to kind of, you know, rip him to shreds and bury him underground. I like the way you said it. Um, <laughs> because, you know, we got to show that that, I, you know, look at that idea and recognize it for what it is, right? Don't, and don't pretend that this man who came up with it, um, that he's actually an authority who can, you know, give you the, the foundation in science to support that idea because, um, I mean, I'm happy to go over all those tales, but boy, if, if, if your listeners haven't heard them, they, they need to know about um, the stuff this guy made up. Right. I mean, it was the, <laughs> factor the and, it a, and, and you do a great job pulling down all the other gurus too, Collins, Peters, even Drucker and Drucker's kind of a saint around here with recognized flaws and totally you pointed them out. And I think you nailed it. Uh, unfortunately, Matthew, we're up against our first break and folks would like to remind you if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com check out patreon.com slash TSOE so you can subscribe to the show and get bonus content and our bonus episodes and commercial free uh, regular episodes. And our Patreon site is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Get ahead, hire a mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. Now a word from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
You're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Folks, we are back with the author of The Management Myth, Why Experts Keep Getting It Wrong, Matthew Stewart. Pleased to have you on, Matthew. Uh, and I, I want to just jump in a, a, a from page three of your book. Like all consultants, I owe my education to the extraordinary generosity of my clients. And I wrote next to it in the margin, amen. <laughs> and one of, one of the things that I think is important to me as a professional consultant for a long time when I did much more consulting day to day was some of the philosophies of uh, Peter Block, who taught me that when done well, and I agree with you that it's often not done well, um, consultants can be a model for behavior for how organizations should move forward even after the consultant moves on. And one of the best compliments that I ever received in a, in a consultant role was when they would say to me, Ed, you've taught us how we can begin to solve our problems on our own once you're gone. And I think when done well, that can be one of the powers of consulting. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point and it really resonates with um, my experience. I'll tell you in a couple of ways. Um, so one is I was lucky enough to do a lot of um, international cross-border type assignments. So I, I worked in Spain, I worked in Switzerland, I worked in France and in Germany. I spent a year in Mexico. Um, and I, I think that sometimes what we, what we could contribute to the client organizations was, in fact, um, a certain kind of culture, right? A certain um, – uh, and I think there were there were two really uh, beneficial aspects of the culture that I thought we we could often bring. Um, w- one is that we we just ask a lot of questions, right? We ask people to think about things. We ask people to um, the brainstorming sessions. Some of them are corny. Uh, some of the questions are obvious. But uh, in, in large organizations, you often find that this kind of sclerosis sets in, and people aren't asking the questions. They aren't realizing that they can actually get somewhere with that. And I think that we, we, we brought some of that. Then the other thing that we brought, which is much more straightforward, is a certain analytic discipline, right? I mean, we, you know, so when, as consultants, you know, the one thing that you, you do over and over again is you just you, know, you look for those numbers and you try to show that, you know, come up with some analysis that you can back up with more than just, just gut intuition. And I think that's another thing that, that can be very helpful in client organizations. But of course, the, the the piece that you cited, admittedly a little snarky. Okay, the book has a little kind of edge like that. I appreciate you going along with that. Uh, it's um, it it reflects the the reverse process of that learning. I mean, I was so uh, fortunate because I went to all these different organizations, and um, I went there not knowing really very much about the context. I you know to call me an expert would be, um, you know, that would be a an insult to Frederick Winslow Taylor, for example, um, and uh, and yet I I, um, I I I learned a lot, and and to some degree, I think I was then passed some that along to others. So I think it's really important for people to understand that there there are there are these really complex ecosystems, and consulting is now part of a kind of complex business managerial thing, and and it does have some positive functions in like distributing culture, distribu- distributing um, uh, best practices that go beyond just uh, business practices, but I think extend into the realm of culture and you know, general approaches and attitudes and, and, and thoughts. 
Well, one of the things Ron and I talk about is the is social uh, social capital, and uh, in a way, c- consulting is can be a form of social capital as you move from organization to organization and bring some of those, as you say, I hate the term best practices, but but really more the philosophical point. But I, th- this leads me now to something that I've been wanting to ask you for a long, long time, ever since I, I, I've, I've read your book. Um, I want you to talk to, to us about the tool, the main tool in any consulting engagement, the whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whale. Yeah, no, so... Uh... Yeah, it's too bad we can't show your listeners some slides, I guess. But there they are. We'll, we'll put it. We'll put. We'll put the graphic up so they'll. Have, they'll but, but. So yeah, I mean, you know, uh, well, I'm sure you're familiar, and, and perhaps most of your listeners are familiar with um, the 2080 rule or the 8020 rule, the Pareto laws, and so on. And I guess it comes down to this very simple insight that applies to so many processes uh, in, in business, in life adding up insects in your room, something like that, that basically 20% of the observations account for 80% of the effects or results. So, you'll, uh, you know, in the case of customers, you find that 20% of your customers account for 80% of the revenues and so on. Um, and then it gets even more complicated because it turns out that when, when you're looking at profitability as opposed to revenue, you you um, get a sort of more complex function where maybe 20% of your your customers might account for 200% of your profit, and then you've got another you know group of losers on the other end that, that account for negative 100%, and so you get this kind of funny curve-like shape, and it turns out that. It, that curve will show up in any number of business processes. If you go look at a you know retail banking operation or credit cards, those are the kind of things I, I focused on. Or or if you look at car manufacturing or tennis ball manufacturing, you're going to find that kind of curve. And here's the the short story of it, though. That curve will tell you something, but you can easily imagine that it tells you too much. So you've got to basically figure out what it's telling you. Uh, and but not go too far and just say, okay, the answer is here. The whale has shown me the way because that doesn't doesn't quite happen. Um, I could I could go on by the way because I, I, I one thing that happens in the book is you know you realize I have this kind of sort of crazy intellectual. I read too many books growing up, and so Moby Dick was one of my favorite books <laughs> in high school. Yeah, so I carried with me. So um, so there's a kind of a you know a, a white whale theme running through the book, and you know I. I, I wanted to describe this hunt for the white whale going on in our in our consulting business. So, anyway, it's a long story, but it's a, it, it was fun. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a great tool. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll often put that, that graphic up and, you know, shout there she blows. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it, you find it everywhere. Um, you know, it, and it's a truism in a lot of, a lot of places. Uh, it, it, it I, I wanted to share this with you. It got expressed to me this way in one organization. Ed, you have to understand here at X organization, the spreadsheet is mightier than the sword. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's right. I got I still, I, I took on some of that. So here I, I, I write books critiquing that whole thing, right? But when it comes to like analyzing some of our household issues, and so on, I will occasionally pull out a spreadsheet and use it to completely dominate the rest of the household and tell them what has to be done. So, um, so yeah, and it, and it is useful. But you know, the other, of course, um, cautionary insight is that the whale can be seductive because, you know, it, you look at it and think, okay, all I have to do is get rid of the 10% of customers who are losing me all the money and hold on to the 20% who are making me all the money and get rid of the ones in between who are nobodies, except that 
there's often a lot of complexity, right? Because maybe the, that 10% are customers who are in an early stage and then need to, you know, progress to, to the happy side of the whale. So, um, so it's, it, it's a tool that can open up doors, but you just have to, it doesn't necessarily give you the answer directly. My, one of my favorite insights was in one of uh, Edwin Tufta's uh, book, and he, he 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 is citing somebody else. I can't remember the name of the other author who did an executive summary of executive summaries. <laughs> he he read like ten thousand executive summaries and then wrote an executive summary of of them, and it came down to three points. And it's one: some do, some don't. Point number two: the differences aren't very great. Point number three: it's more complicated than that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's ultimately what the whale tells you. It can give you some insight, as you say, depending upon you know how, how the whale is drawn in a particular company. But what you then have to do with it is is really uh, up, up to you. I want to share with you one other thing that that has happened to me, and as as an inspiration to you and a nod to you. I was in a, a meeting a couple of years ago. I've been with Sage for seventeen years, so this is a previous regime that really got into. ROI analysis. What's the ROI? So we had a, you know, so we had this spreadsheets of ROI and you had to fit your thing into the ROI. And I asked during a meeting, again, inspired by you, has anyone done the ROI of the ROI tool? <laughs> right, right. And of right, course well, the answer right. is no. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they looked at yeah. they look at you like you're insane. Like, well, right, right, because right. it's self-evident, right, Matthew? It's it's it, the ROI tool must be right. <laughs> Yeah, but Ed, you got to be careful because you're going to work yourself out of a job. It's kind of, kind of what happened to me, with me, to me right? I mean, it's, uh, this was, you know, Ron was talking about the impact of studying philosophy, and I was just, you know, thinking about that. And um, it, I think it gave me a perspective on, on management issues, but then at the same time, it also ultimately led me to leave the management stuff because, you know, it was philosophically interesting, but only up to a point that I had to kind of move beyond. So I'm just concerned, Ed. I don't want you to go too far with this ROI, <laughs> Because it could could lead you to a dark place. <laughs> a very dark place. Well, one uh, last question before the the break. Um, you you talked about the, the the impact of your your customers, as we would say, had on you and the learning that you've done from them. And I think that that's that's great. What was? Do you ever have an experience where the, the 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 client was inviting you into their bubble and? wanted you to be part of their bubble. In other words, we talked earlier about sometimes being the outsider is helpful, but a lot of cases they want you to continue the self-deception. And did you ever have experience with that where they, you know, where they, they'd want the, the, to tell to the, that to just continue with this, the bad story that was happening? Oh yeah. I mean, and unfortunately there's a kind of, to be honest, I think that happened uh, more to some of the people I worked with as opposed to, to me personally, but I saw it, really up close. And it's, um, I think people do need to understand that there is a, a, a negative economic dynamic too that, that kicks in. You know, when you're a consultant, you're working with this client organization, the deeper you burrow in, the more profitable it is as, as a consultant, because then you just sell follow on projects and so on. But there does come a point where you're essentially just, you're, you're, you're inside the firm and you're just part of its dysfunctions and you're just another bureaucratic player, um, within it. Um, and uh, the only the only way that story ends um, happily, I think, is when the consultant basically ends up going working for, to work for the client, and that that does happen quite a bit, as I'm, I'm sure you know. And I had colleagues who would go off and do that. I mean, I can remember I was, you know, especially big banks and big European banks. Man, they are they are these little worlds in themselves, giant complex cultures, 
And, you know, when you're in there, uh, it's hard to get out. Um, and um, well, yeah, I lost some people there. Left, I believe, <laughs> on the, had to leave them on the field, you know, because uh, they, they really, you know, in the end, they, they, started, they started dressing like the client, you know. Yeah. And they started, you know, following the same hours, too, for example. That's like another big, there's a, that's when a big cultural shift, I think, happens, right? When um, consultants, as, as you know, at least in my experience, have their own uh, idea of time and, and how to manage it. Uh, and it's usually pretty, pretty intense. Um, and many client organizations have a different concept of time. Uh, but some of the client, the consultants, they start to then behave like the client. They start to show up at the same time. They go to the office with the client. They have the ID badge, and then you know, then they get absorbed. Yeah, absorbed into the Borg, I guess. The Borg, yeah, exactly. Well, Matthew, this is great, but uh, we're up against our break. Want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is the soul of enterprise where we post show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Matthew Stewart, the author of The Management Myth. And Matthew, if you want to get Ed really upset, say something like, if you can't measure it, you can't management and manage it, and then attribute that saying to Peter Drucker. We've kind of combed through Drucker. He never really did say it. The closest I could find of anybody who said it was Marvin Bauer from McKinsey, called the McKinsey Maxim. But... <laughs> Here's my question, kind of like uh, Ed's meta question. How do you measure the effectiveness of management itself? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Let me start with Peter Drucker, by the way, because, um, you know, I, I um, was, I think, more sympathetic to him than to some of the other um, gurus. And, and I think that, well, I don't remember about the specifics on if you can't measure, you can't manage it. I do think that he had a concept of management by objectives. He did. Which I think was important. And, um, but I, I think that, you know, he was subtle enough to understand that objectives are not necessarily always um, uh, quantitative. They're not just some number that you, that you aim to maximize, but rather a more general concept. So um, I think Drucker was a, um, had, had, had some insight. Um, I thought in terms of his personality, there was something kind of vain about him. Um, really wanted to be seen as the top management guru, but that's a separate issue. Yeah, now to your question though, about how do you measure um, management? Um, I, I, I don't like the idea of positing that there is a, a, a single measure. I think it's important to understand that management in our society has a number of really important um, functions um, but those, those functions are more like, uh, to some degree, they're more like duties than they are um, objectives. What I mean by that is, um, let, me, let me put it another way, something that I think a lot, a lot of people have trouble accepting, but I think it's fundamentally true, is that while we, we, we function in a market in some general sense, management is, to an important degree, something that's kind of on the side of or before or just outside of the market. That is, it's organizing people to compete, but within the managerial space, it's doing something that isn't quite the same thing um, as a um, as a market. And I think that that's part of the reason why you can't really measure it in terms of just numbers and treat it as if, as if you're going to have a you know a clearing market and so on, because it's precisely something that human needs in order to be able to function in a competitive market. But it, it's separate. So those those things that management does, those functions. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm suggesting that there's something like duties are things like um, establishing the basis for cooperation, right? building um, trust, or providing leadership. I mean, these things sound kind of, you know, plain vanilla and highfalutin and so on. But at the end of the day, if you didn't need that, you probably wouldn't really need management. You could, in fact, just, you know, put the numbers out there and just have people, you know, get their, get their, their little things, their things punched and filled uh, without any kind of management. And, you know, Fortunately or unfortunately, human beings don't work that way. You need to get them to work together. And I think that's one of the really important things that, that, that management does. And, and so I think precisely for that reason, I know this is very abstract and it's 4 o'clock on a Friday, so who knows why <laughs> we're doing it. But um, it's, it, it's very abstract, but I think it's still a very important point that I think that it's, it's fundamentally um, a mistake to um, – to think that you are going to be able to measure management in some precise way. There are things you can measure. There are definitely quantitative tools you want to use, but the kinds of things you're trying to accomplish with it ultimately are the kinds of things that have to be judged in a different way, in a more you know, value-based way. Right, right. I, I think judgment is so much more important in, in a lot of areas than measurement itself. I mean, you, you wrote that our motto might well have been, if you can't manage it, measure it. And it seems like a lot of organizations do that. Well, the more we measure, the more we'll accomplish. And I actually think the most precious things in life can't be measured. I mean, I think about the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Tell me how you measure that. But how, how ideal are those, are those principles that we all aspire to? And that can't be measured. I, I just think 
the whole cult of measurement drives me crazy. Just like, you know, it bleeds through your book too. And it bleeds through our work. We hate it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think Ryan, you're really right to, that it's often, it's used as a shield to avoid doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right. I mean, so it's basically you, you say, well, I, you know, I, I've measured it and, you know, and I've maximized whatever this little number is that I've decided is there or I'm pretending is the right thing to do. And then that just becomes an excuse for not doing what you're actually supposed to do. So, so I think it's, it's, you know, you're really quite right to say that it's, it's not just a kind of um, a, a mistake or, um, or something that, that, that um, is suboptimal. In fact, it's often a way of avoiding, you know, facing the facts. And it's just like you talked about Robert McNamara and his, you know, one metric body count during the Vietnam War, which he apologized for later in his biography, I think, or his autobiography. Um, but we always joke that if Disney had hired efficiency experts or maybe Frederick Winslow Taylor himself, he would have ended up producing Snow White and the Three Dwarfs. <laughs> so efficiency can come yeah. at the expense of doing the right thing. And that's where it gets really dangerous. Yeah, there is a point where um, that uh, another thing that happens is that with that quest for precision gets to the point where it's, of course, extremely inefficient to look for that extra precision, right? Because you know, as Aristotle famously said, there, you, know, you should only look for as much precision as the subject will admit. So, um, you know, we have to recognize that fact. It's nice that you mentioned Robert McNamara because I think he's, he is such an interesting case. It's very familiar now. There's... Uh, there was that great documentary. Um, can't remember the famous director involved, but um, you know he he is this tragic figure because he's sort of aware of this problem and somehow he can't get out of it um, because he's got that number thing. He was raised as a whiz kid, right? Whiz kid. He was yeah. Brought up um, from the very beginning, saying you are the A plus student. You're the one who can add up, you know, fifteen digit numbers in your head. So therefore, all the answers are going to come in the form of these numbers. And then he's in the Vietnam War, and he realizes that, it, uh, and what we we realize that that, that doesn't um, doesn't give you the answer that matters. Matthew, the other thing that you wrote that I just this I think this is absolutely profound, and I think only a philosopher could have written this. You said theory X and theory Y depend on theory U for utopian. And you say, really, it's about theory T for tragic Shakespeare, the, our framers, the ancient Greeks, maybe without Plato. Um, but most successful managers are T types. Unpack that for us, because I, I, I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. So I, I, one thing I noticed in, in, the, in the literature is that you can say that I, I think you can safely say that 95 percent of management literature is utopian. And by that, I mean that it basically says there is an answer. Once you apply this answer, all conflict will go away. Every, every constituency will, be, will go, home go home happy. All transactions will clear. Um, and uh, you just need to buy this book to make that happen. That's the utopian thing. Um, and yet, I think most people will recognize that in, in real experience, um, there are these irresolvable conflicts or these conflicts that are so deep that it'll take a very, very long time to resolve them. Um, and I think that um, we can recognize that successful managers often are the ones who can in some way recognize those conflicts, straddle them and not pretend that they're going to go away. Um, and, um, 
that that then becomes you know the basis for for uh, more successful leadership. I mean, I think in terms not just of, of you know managers, of course, more general paradigms of leadership. I mean, for me, someone like Abraham Lincoln is a is a tremendous example of a um, a tragic leader. Right? He's kind of a tragic pragmatist. He wants to get things done. He knows you have to um, get things done in order to have an impact. But he also recognizes that that you're not going to get it done in a way that's going to satisfy everybody. You're not going to get it done in a way that um, you know leads to a sort of utopia where everyone's on the on the beach and you know sipping a lovely cocktail and smiling all day long. So um, I think that that tragic sense is really important for people to understand. I think it's the root also of our appreciation of complexity. Um, so I guess that's I wanted to draw attention to that, and I appreciate you bringing up theory U and theory T. I mean, okay, you know we need these heuristics, and I'm I'm happy to. You know, I figure if theory X and theory Y were a little bit impoverished, because that's, you know, that's only two, and so I wanted to have more. Right. <laughs> well, it reminded me of Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, where he talks about the constrained and unconstrained view of man. And same type of thinking. It was just, I just thought it was a brilliant insight to apply it where you did. Um, we couldn't agree more with you that business is not a profession. Ed's got a great saying, business ain't science. Um, but but let me ask you this, because you take on this issue, too, and, and Peter Drucker did in his own way as well. He, he, he thought business was a branch of humanities, basically. And do you think, Matthew, we'd be better? And this is a impractical question, but I can do that because I'm not talking to a philosopher. Would society be better off without business schools? Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't have um, a lot of um, uh, f- friends at the business schools, or at least they're <laughs> friendly to me, but they, they often don't really want to hear too much from me. Um, you know, um, here's one thing I think we can safely say. We don't need anywhere near as many business degrees as we have. So I think that is something I will, I will stick with. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, I mean, I think, of course, it makes sense to study business in a systematic way, and, and I, I would, I would want to keep, keep some of that. Um, but I, I think that the deeper issue is that um, we've, we've pursued a very limited idea of education, right? So we have, we have um, fallen increasingly into this, you know, uh, training idea of education, right? The idea that that um, the only pers- purpose of getting these degrees is to give you a very specific skill to, to solve a specific kind of problem that you will then be hired to do, right? So, we, you know, it's kind of like saying that you're, we teach you here how to drill holes in granite blocks. And when you get a job, you're going to get a job drilling holes in granite blocks. Um, and, you know, with, with due respect to stonemasons and so on, uh, that kind of training is not really what's appropriate for for most people involved in um, managerial things, and, and honestly, that extends even into in, into the more specialized professions. Um, it certainly is the case in, in management consulting. I mean, I I, I, I try myself out as an example. I studied philosophy, and it honestly didn't make a bit of difference whether I'd gone to business school or studied philosophy. I don't think it, it, it would have mattered at all. Except I think the philosophy was better. Um, but I think it's true for, for, for many other people, and there's just so much empirical evidence to back this up. You have, you know, lawyers who then go to work as consultants, and they do perfectly well or better, astrophysicists and so on. So um, 
we need to have a broader idea of what education is, what it can do. I think the humanities is definitely a part of that. Um, there's a whole critique of the humanities that we could go into, but I don't think this is the right place to do it. Um, so I don't want to just endorse it as it is, but, um, but I think if we can, you know, adopt this, um, this different and in some ways older idea of education, we would be better off. And yeah, those business schools have to go. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars now that, that students spend, um, we all know it's kind of a signaling device to some degree, right? They're just paying the money so they can flash it out there. Um, we know it's a networking device, but I mean, come on, there are other ways to, to build the, the network and, you know, having that sort of exclusive uh, leafy campus as the basis for networking is, is, is in some ways suboptimal. Um, so, so yeah, I think we could do, we could do a lot better. Um, and to add still more complexity to it, by the way, um, there's, there, business education is, is, is itself a kind of big animal, and there's a huge part of it that is undergraduate, not prestige, it's sort of um, you know, licensing-type degrees. And then there's another part which tends to get more attention. We tend to think about it more um, if you're kind of a, a member of the, um, you know, the, the talking elite, and that, of course, is the um, – you know, the selective university business schools that give their more fancy degrees. And those are two different worlds. And I think the problems there are very different and should be, should be managed differently. Um, mm-hmm. And on, on the undergraduate side, my, my feeling is that there's, there's way too much of that. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a shame really that, you know, we, college education can be very helpful to a lot of people. It definitely opens doors, but you bring them in and you have them study these kind of, uh, very narrow and often uninteresting and uh, subjects, and it's just not appropriate. I mean, yes, they want to get jobs, but let's let's actually you know prepare them for a, a full life and hope that that helps them get the jobs rather than give them a sort of artificial training. Right. Anyway, you obviously pushed the button there. No, no, no. Like you say, it's all about people, and the key has never been to study human relations. It's to become a better person. I just absolutely love that. Well, Matthew, this has been a real honor having you on, Ed is going to take you home, but I just want to say thank you so much. This has been great. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing 
hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise we are on with matthew stewart the author of the management myth debunking modern business philosophy also his books are, include the the courtier and the heretic lieblitz spinoza and the fate of god in modern in the modern world and nature's god the heretical origins of the american republic and the upcoming book the 9.9 percent the new aristocracy that is entrenching inequality and warping our culture matthew please come back on and when after that book is uh, out we'd love to talk to you about that as well but let's finish up on the management myth conversation so we can put put this to bed um in in doing the the the, the research for our interview today and revisiting your work i came across this sentence and it says americans often fell in love with the effects of science not the method and man that struck me with regard to what we're seeing with regard to covid-19 <laughs> And we had a, uh, a guest about a month ago, Donald Hoffman, who is at UC Irvine and has a, his, his book is called The, 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 uh, the, the uh, Case Against Reality, which we'll let you <laughs> take into that. But he said this. He said, science isn't dogmatic, but scientists are. And I think the same thing is happening with in, in, in leadership management today. There's a lot of dogma that has really no basis in, in fact. So talk a little about your observations of that. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important um, thing. Because of course, I, I um, was struck when I approached the management literature, that there was this basically false idea of scientific management. But buried within that is a certain false idea about science, as you say, right? Because, because science properly understood is really this kind of um, pursuit of knowledge that comes with quite a bit of doubt. I mean, it comes with a recognition of the limits of our knowledge, um, and it comes also with a you know, high degree of, of openness, and it also comes with, um, if it's done um, right, it comes with quite a bit of openness to distinct fields and methods of inquiry and so on. Um, but it's often associated with the idea that actually what it's going to give you is you know, something absolutely rock hard, unquestionable, uh, fixed for all time. Um, and that, and that, that's the dogma, right? That's the idea that, no, I don't need to, to go any farther. I don't need to actually collect any more evidence because I know the answer and it comes from science, this thing called science. So, so yeah, we need to, um, to, to think about our idea of science and improve it. So that's a really, really interesting point. Of course, I want to bash management first, but then I also want to bash this idea of, um, uh, uh, of science so we can improve that, um, as well, and it's really important, as you say. Like, you know, now it's a, you know the COVID thing where it makes it a uh, an important life or death um, and you know um, issue, and also one that dramatically affects the economy. So you know nothing could be more important right now than to understand what science is and also what it isn't. Nothing is less scientific than the phrase "it's settled science." <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's that's fair enough. Yeah. 
you know, the science is settled. Well, then by definition, it's not science, right? That's that we're, it's, we're supposed to be questioning it. That's the, that's the point. Um, wanted to, to share with you something. Uh, one of the, the other uh, business philosophers and, in fact, CEO that I'm a big fan of is John Mackey at Whole Foods. And um, he has a really interesting way of thinking about business and profitability in that he says this profit is like the red blood cells in your body. It's not the you, you die without red blood cells, but you don't think, hey, I got to make red blood cells today. That's not that's not why you wake up in the morning. And he also compares uh, businesses with giraffes. And he says, you know, people see uh, businesses making a profit as surviving and say, therefore, they must be in business to create a profit. The reality is, is you're in business for some other purpose. And the ones that survive happen to have profits, just like the one, the giraffes that survive happens to be the one that have longer and longer necks to get to the higher and higher leaves. So um, what is your thoughts on purpose in business? Right. You know, and, and, and by the way, we had this Peter Drucker thread, and I think Peter Drucker says something along those lines that... Um, yeah. The purpose of a business is not actually to make a profit. That's the sort of necessary condition, but um, it has um, other purposes. Um, you know, I always like that, that, even though I, I did, did bash them too a bit, the, the human relations school, they had this one wonderful point, which is that, look, the, um, the reality is that businesses exist in, uh, in the world and in a complex society, and they have... Um, they serve very important um, purposes in our, in our society. And you have to understand what they do um, in that context. You can't say that a, um, a car manufacturer or a vaccine maker or a bank, that they are there just to get some number at the end of the year. You have to say, in fact, that they're there to you know, help with the transportation, to, to, to advance human health or to facilitate transactions. So you, you need to have this broader sense of purpose. And at some point, I think that that does involve referring to what it does for, you know, for, for, for human beings, how it's supportive of a, you know, a, a society that, that works, you know, where people have freedom uh, and at the same time they're productive. So, so I don't think there's a simple answer to your question of purpose, but it's very, very important to raise it and very important to understand that these kind of narrow ideas that it's just there to, you know, they're the classic phrase, you know, the United States steel is not in the business of making steel, it's in the business of making money. That was a classic line. Um, it's 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 not really it's not adequate. It's not adequate because it doesn't explain what's really going on or how you're going to make it better. All right, I'm not going to. I'm going to do something totally unfair to you, Matthew. Thirty seconds. The nine point nine percent. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> well, nine point nine percent. Look, it, I, I I hope people will will, will take a look. Uh, it's a book coming out in five months. Um, I want to draw attention to, to changes that are happening in American society. I think that um, we've had uh, nothing stays still. I think we've had a, a, a rapid escalation in, in inequality and a kind of fragmentation um, that's resulted from that. And that's changed the way that we think individually. It changes the way we behave, not just uh, it's not something that just impacts our, our wallets, it impacts our minds. And that's the issue that I want to address. Well, outstanding. We look forward to reading it and having you back on to discuss it. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We got Dre Baldwin, uh, Ed, and he's a basketball player, and he's going to tell us his story. All right. Well, I look forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so that organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at uh, 12 p.m. We're changing our time, Ed. Mm -hmm. uh, 12 p.m. Pacific to um, uh, moving up an hour. In the meantime, feel free to check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview with Matthew, links where you can find his work and him. And you can also contact me or Ed at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.